Hello, folks. Welcome to another edition of Inside the Marble Palace, post-media Saskatchewan's look at the goings-on at the Saskatchewan Legislature. I am Marie Mandrick. I am political columnist for the Leader Post and Star of Phoenix. And joining me this week, Alex Salome, who is a Leader Post reporter covering politics at this particular moment. Welcome aboard, Alex. We've had you on before, and thank you so much for joining us, and thanks for the good work you're doing right now at the Legislature. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a little bit different, but I'm struggling through it. Yes. <laughs> well, you're doing a great job. And a face familiar uh, to people on this podcast, Phil Tank of the Star Phoenix, who does some wonderful work on COVID-19 and knows way more about it than I do. So uh, I thank you for joining us, Phil. You help me and bail me out when I'm asking really dumb, stupid questions. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. We'll start out with Alec because... Uh, uh, there has been some interesting stories at the legislature that haven't necessarily been directly related to COVID, uh, but have, have certainly offered a real taste of the, uh, the place. The first one I want to talk about uh, is the case of the Finn family. Uh, and while this is not a directly related to uh, COVID-19, it is a health story and a very compelling one. And I'm happy to say one that might have actually produced a good outcome because that doesn't always happen at the legislature. But can you walk us through the case of of the Finn family and uh, young Connor Finn and his situation and what led to that preferable outcome that we saw on Monday that seems to have pleased so many people, uh, Alec? Yeah, absolutely. So just for a bit of background, uh, Connor Finn, he's five years old right now, but when he was four months, four years and two months old, he was diagnosed with adrenoleukodystrophy or for, oh. the, <laughs> for the ease of conversation, ALD. I'm not going to get into the specific specifics of it, but it's a degenerative disease that required a very specific treatment that was not offered in Canada. This is a degenerative disease. I spoke with the doctor in Minnesota that actually, uh, did the procedure, and he said that in his realm, the saying goes, time is brain. So ALD will eventually affect the brain. And and Connor, when he was diagnosed with this, they caught it early, but they had to act very quickly. And as such, the Finn family scoured Canada. Uh, Connor's mother, Kirsten, uh, scoured Canada to see if this treatment was available. And it's a bone marrow and stem cell uh, treatment. Now, bone marrow transplants, stem cell treatments are available in Canada, but with ALD specifically, there's aftercare that's really important, and that wasn't offered in Canada. It was only really offered at the University of Minnesota on this continent. So what they ended up doing is she and her husband, Craig, basically cashed in their entire retirement savings that they've accrued for 30-some years. Uh, It was about $823,000 that they ended up spending on this treatment to get Connor to the University of Minnesota to get him treatment. They didn't really want to wait around much because, again, as uh, Dr. Troy Lund said, time equals brain in this case. And they got there in time, had the treatment done. Connor is now healthy, does not have any trace of ALD in his body. There was some damage done. He has some visual impairment, some cognitive impairment, but he's a fairly healthy five-year-old right now. There's a bit more treatment that needs to be done. The crux of the story is that the government did not feel that this treatment was only available in Minnesota. They, they, for whatever reason, even after a review board had recommended that they reimburse the Finn family, felt that the 
treatment that was received in America was available in Canada. Kirsten Finn was vehement that it absolutely was not. On November 15th, she met with Paul Merriman, she and her husband, Craig, and I believe Connor, uh, met with, with uh, Minister of Health Paul Merriman to discuss the specifics of the case and to discuss specifically why they had to go to the University of Minnesota. And Paul Merriman, I confirmed with Dr. Troy Lund, had a conversation with the doctor. Doctor on November 15th explained how and why ALD treatment is different at the University of Minnesota, why the treatment they were seeking is not present in Canada. And on Monday, uh, the government decided to fully reimburse the Finn family. And it's one of these cases where you're right, it, it is a happy story here. And I mean, the way that it came about was advocacy from the Isaac Foundation, um, constant pressure from the Finn family. And that was very much Kirsten Finn's advice to parents that are going through a similar situation is do not take no for an answer. If, if you have scoured you know, the entire country for assistance, for treatment, and it's not available here, and you have to go out of country for treatment, keep pushing, keep working at it. In response to this, Paul Merriman has said that they're going to create a rare disease strategy so that families in any kind of similar situation are going to be able to hopefully not have to incur the same debt that the Finn family did. And again, this comes from the pressure that was mounted in part by the opposition and in part by the Finn family. But I mean, again, after about a year, because Connor would have been diagnosed in 2020 um, and would have gone down to the States for that treatment, it it has a relatively happy outcome and hopefully things like this won't happen in the future when and if this uh, rare disease strategy gets up and running. Thanks so much for that, Alec, because people have been really fascinated with this story because it's so bloody compelling. Obviously, you do have a little kid uh, that's sick and there's the political element to it, too, in terms of what is the right decision in the public health care system. Obviously, everybody can't go to the United States for every treatment they want because we'd be bankrupt having to finance uh, the equivalent of a private health care system if we chose that route. And these tough, miserable decisions have to be made uh, by government. And sometimes it's actually good to write about when they work out. But I, I, another reason I'm fascinated by this, and I'll, this is where I'll bring Phil into the conversation. All this stuff is going on at any given time in the Saskatchewan legislature. Yet we still have all a, a whole new other layer of problems in the healthcare system and in every place else, the economy and everywhere that have been created by nearly two years of this pandemic. And I guess the best place to start, if you can, uh, Phil, because they did talk a little bit about the backlog this week in terms of of surgeries and and such and how they're looking at uh, the end game of COVID-19 and catching up. Uh, we're seeing some great movement on two fronts uh, one of these days. Hopefully that the catching up on some of the backlog surgeries will be one of them. But the other one will be the reduction of active cases, uh, active hospitalizations, active ICUs, hopefully by uh, reduced numbers and the fact that we have kids vaccines. So wherever you want to start with, either in terms of the backlog of surgeries or what the numbers are starting to uh, to look like, be my guest, Phil. Uh, uh, I guess we'd start with the numbers uh, if, if, if you possibly can. Well, I think when I, when I, when I see the Finn family example, I think Okay, we we know that we spent a lot more than we plan to spend on healthcare the last two years, right? With uh, with all of the and that, and that has been ongoing, and that in particularly this fall with the crush we saw on, on ICUs and the and the you know the catch up in terms of uh, 
you know, the backlog of surgeries and other treatments and, and getting all these services up and running, um, it, you know, th- that's all going to be expensive. And, and, you, and it's relevant in the, in the Finn family's cases that you do wonder, this is a government that's promised to balance the budget, I believe, before the next election. And, you know, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, thing they spend money on is health care. So they're going to be looking to say, uh, let, let's see if we can cut some corners here. Let's see if we can save some money there. Uh, that sort of thing, whether there's going to be cases like this that fall through the cracks. So this is a really important case, even though it's not really pandemic related, to sort of look at and say, okay, well, how does our how does our healthcare system work? If if we have something that we can't get, you know, that is a treatment that's very expensive, is the you know is the government going to drag its heels? Is the government going to try to save money, or are they going to say, okay, we we'd like to sp- be spending less than we are on healthcare, uh, but um, uh, you know, there's certain times when, you know, we have a public health care system and we, we promise to help, uh, uh, you know, the taxpayers who pay for it. Absolutely. Do you see a bit of a catch up happening right now uh, on just based on the ability uh, to not have to deal with as many cases? And it's hard not to notice because the ICU numbers were so high in Saskatchewan and we were sending so many people out of Provincefield uh, that it's hard not to notice that we actually have a significant reduction and that is no longer a story in the news. Can you talk about where we are at in terms of those numbers and 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 where they seem beheaded? The government's exceedingly optimistic about this. Yes, we're, we're certainly down in terms of hospitalizations. I still think there's seven or eight people in ICU in, in, um, Ontario. in Ontario. Uh, ICUs, I think, are down in, into the 30s now. Of course, they were in the 80s at the height of the, pen, uh, at the, height of the uh, fourth wave this fall. Uh, so we definitely have seen some reductions there. Uh, you know, they, they laid out a very ambitious uh, uh, schedule to return all the, uh, to return to full services. I don't believe they've actually said yet. You know, their plan was to have the organ transplant, which is a, which is a program that got a lot of attention, uh, and deservedly so for being cancelled amid the fourth wave. Uh, the plan was to have it up and running by the end of the month. That's coming up pretty quickly now, so I, I haven't heard of its official um, reinstatement. So you know, that's something I think to watch for. Uh, but yeah, we're definitely um, uh, doing better on the healthcare front. Although we're also seeing, uh, you know, ICU demand, you know, last week we, uh, I did a story where ICU demand is, is rising in terms of people who had not sought treatment during the fourth wave, uh, either because they didn't want to overwhelm the healthcare system or they were afraid of getting, inf- you know, infected with COVID or whatever else. So we are seeing, you know, um, you know, other people start, we're starting to see the people who weren't getting treated during the fourth wave, you know, go to hospital now. That, that, that's an interesting point. And of course, the big news this week, obviously, is vaccines for kids because they are starting to show uh, up far more dramatic or they were starting to show up far more dramatically in the case, daily case numbers. Roughly a third of the daily cases the last time I think I looked, Phil, was was kids under 12 years old uh, that weren't eligible for vaccines. Tell us a little bit about the rollout in terms of how it's going to work and how it's worked so far in terms of what you're seeing in terms of the bookings for parents getting their kids five to 12 years old uh, vaccinated at this particular point. Yeah, it, it, it seems to be uh, rolling pretty quickly uh, in terms of like, um, you know, uh, we, we, I think the plane landed in Canada on Monday with the shipment of the Pfizer vaccine. And then the announcement was, I think they announced Monday, yep, we're starting, we're going to get the shipment Tuesdays. 
the vaccine clinics uh, started in Regina and Saskatoon today. I mean, yes, there was a glitch yesterday in the uh, in the bookings. Uh, we've seen that before during the pandemic, so it's kind of something we've come to expect. Uh, Twelve thousand or more than twelve thousand. Uh, uh, appointments booked in the first five hours which is good i think what i think the one to watch i think this is one not to look at the first day and kind of wait for a week and see where we are because we know that there's parents who may have been eager to get the vaccine themselves that may be a little bit hesitant about giving it to their kids a lot of misinformation out there a lot of uh a lot of uh uh different things but you know i mean that this is like the other one it went through clinical trials uh, it's been deemed uh, Health Canada reviewed the clinical trial information and it's been deemed, uh, deemed you know, the benefits of way the risk, which is, uh, uh, you know, the way they measure these things. No serious uh, trial showed no serious uh, side effects, just the side effects you'd expect, you know, sore arm, you know, kind of fluy symptoms. Uh, but, you know, Critics would say that the, the sample size was small and, uh, you know, we're now giving this to uh, lots of kids. So, yeah, I mean, uh, like I say, I, I think we need to we'd wait a week to see where we are on this one. Alec, this is what fascinates me about government. They have complicated problems that need solving and constant addressing, as, as, as Phil just described. Even when you think you have a solution to a problem like vaccines, things come up and there's other things to deal with. But not satisfied with that. Government finds a way to create new problems <laughs> for itself. And it did on a couple fronts this week, I thought, anyway. The, the first was in relation to uh, overriding the order of... Uh, uh, the Swift Current uh, Medical uh, Health Officer, who since September has recommended that that there be limited gatherings in schools in the Swift Current area because of an outbreak at that school and elsewhere. It was a provincial volleyball uh, final heading, heading that way. Lo and behold, the education minister is from Weyburn. Weyburn happened to have a team in the volleyball final that week, and parents were very concerned some of their kids wouldn't be able to play all of a sudden because of that. So, you know, uh, what we saw was a letter from the education minister kindly, carefully reminding people that, you know what, kids still have a right to participate in extracurricular activities. Uh, that was resolved this week, generally speaking, with uh, the government basically saying that they were going to follow the recommendation for that. But in, t in terms of, of of that entire uh, story. And I think I got most of the elements of it uh, right, Alec. What was Health Minister Paul Merriman's position on this? Because that's what I find a little bit fascinating. In, in essence, you have a situation where you normally would think that the education minister and the health minister would be in somewhat conflict with different kind of views in terms of what should happen. But they were, I think, my understanding, singing, singing from the same songbook, weren't they? They very much were, yeah, and and that was a little bit of a point of confusion uh, during question period because it it seemed to be there have been a number of cases where there have been additional measures brought in by municipalities or local public health officers that have looked to have maybe toothier responses to spreads of uh, the Delta variant, especially, and we can get into that with uh, CIC and SGI later. But when, when it came to this one in particular, I mean, the school in Swift Current was in an active outbreak as of November 13th, which is part of what motivated this local public health officer to encourage these measures. 
But even then, it seemed like what Minister Merriman was was really preferencing here was that excluding children from these extracurriculars, excluding children, or you know, just essentially saying like, hey, you need to have a vaccine or some additional measure of protection to prevent the further spread of this thing. It it seemed like he was maybe erring on the side of just letting kids go and play. And I, I couldn't really get a general sense as to why that is, because it seems to be somewhat against the recommendations of Dr. Shahab and uh, public health officers as well. I mean, Shahab has said that it's very important that children are able to experience extracurriculars and that they not be divided in some way. And uh, Minister Merriman made some appeal to not creating two classes of children vaccinated and unvaccinated within the province. But I mean, like you said, uh, across Canada, one of the largest vectors for transmission is children under 12. And admittedly, this would have been a high school uh, tournament uh, in Swift Current, but still, they were very much in lockstep on this, and they did not seem to have any daylight between the two of them when it came to the recommendations for the tournament. It, it seems bizarre to me in terms sometimes of what the government is thinks they're protecting and is actually protecting and, and what they're allowing uh, supposedly independent bodies that uh, function within the framework of government to do what they're not allowing to do. And you mentioned the SGI story, and that story, from my understanding this week, was basically uh, a memo that came out where SGI wanted, while there was no masking order on during this summer, to institute its own mas masking order. And its Crown Investment Corp uh, uh, holding company basically says, well, maybe you better not do that because that's really not our government policy. Do we really get a sense right now from what the minister was saying, what the premier was saying? I think he spoke about it yesterday, uh, Alec, that there's sort of an independent sense of uh, of government right, near, uh, right now in, in terms of allowing uh, organizations or groups to function uh, outside the framework of whatever the government wants to do. Yeah, not not really, right? Because Premier Mo had said that you know his office did not give any recommendations to the CIC and how to proceed with their recommendations to the SGI. But again, like I mentioned, when early days of the pandemic, when uh, Regina brought in additional public health measures, when Saskatoon recently tried to bring in additional public health measures, when there have been these cases of public health orders at a business or municipal level get, level get brought in, there's a bit of pushback when they go beyond what the province has in place. And so with this memo in particular, it was drafted on or about August 6th and was meant to come into effect August 30th. You know, we can think about the halcyon days of, of late August as we were kind of getting into the fourth wave. And what they essentially wanted to do was bring in this mask mandate for people in common areas. It, it, it wouldn't have affected people that were already behind plexiglass unless they wanted to. It wouldn't have affected um, anything really in the workplace. It wouldn't have affected capacity. Just essentially, as Delta was ramping up and there weren't these additional public health measures, SGI sought to bring in a mask mandate. By the 27th, it looks like the CIC said, hey, uh, from what we've heard, no go that that's not happening so it, it doesn't really look like there is that independence even though what we've seen in the past is the province take a bit of a laissez-faire approach to this letting uh school boards essentially especially uh bring in their own mandates and and kind of hold the hot potato on this but when it came to the crowns in particular it seemed as though they weren't as game for that by proxy of cic recommending that they not bring in this mandate i i get a feeling here because i i just don't understand often what the government 
things it needs to govern and dictate and what it doesn't. And one of the issues is something else that came up in the legislature because it came up in bill form, but Phil has done a ton of stuff on it related to that, is issues related to protests around schools. Uh, and we now have a bill in the legislature this week, Phil, uh, basically preventing that. Now, I know that there's been huge numbers of protests around hospitals. Why do we need one around schools? Because I'm not really hearing as much about about that, is there something going on elsewhere that I'm just not hearing about, or, or is this sort of somewhat the government jumping the gun on on a or properly properly anticipating a problem, Phil? What's your take? Well, first, I'd like to say that the response on the SGI is is seems very quick compared to yeah. the medical yeah. health officers, yeah. who I believe are still still waiting for a response for to their sense. October letter uh, <laughs> urging a few uh, some some more uh, restrictions. Uh, yeah, this is uh, you know people remember uh, the hospital protests, and there was a big one here in Saskatoon outside of City Hospital, and I was at it, and um, you know I, I think that uh, the um, the impression was in society and across Canada that that really crossed the line. If you and and we didn't see this so much here, right? They, nobody was prevented uh, from entering the hospital. No one was harassed entering or leaving, except of course there was a crowd of about 200 people uh, uh, protesting and uh, uh, you know spewing a bunch of misinformation. Um, but you know. I think that movement, at least in Saskatchewan and probably across Canada, realized, oh, you know, people find that found that very unsavory. So we've crossed the line that we're not supposed to. The next possible protest in in, in uh, Saskatoon was moved away from the entrance to the hospital. It was in the park nearby and it only attracted a few people. And, and so I think the, I think the movement kind of evolved. You know, and, and and they now talk about unity. You know, the unified grassroots roots group has come up, and they talk about love and unity and that sort of thing, and and just uniting everybody. I, I still don't think they believe vaccines are are um, effective. But you know, this this group, people in this group, literally believe that that vaccines are poison. So you know, with the uh, introduction of uh, vaccines for children, you can imagine that they would be. Um, you know, motivated to protest even more as we begin the vaccinations for children. Uh, the one thing that the, you know, I mean, protest movement is led, but, you know, here and elsewhere is led by a bunch of narcissists who lack the ability to think critically. The one thing they've got right is that, you know, we have given up uh, our charter enshrined rights during the pandemic, specifically our right to assemble. And when, you know, a government does that, there needs, I think there needs to be a really good reason to do it. And, and certainly if you want this to stand up in court, there needs to be a really good reason. If Protests at school started and they were proved to be problematic. I think it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to take away the right to assembly and create these safe zones. Uh, this is probably an unpopular opinion, by the way, because I think there is support for this. The NDP supports it. But, you know, I don't believe the, the health minister couldn't really answer whether this would, you know, this would uh, apply to uh, students wanting to protest uh, climate change. or you well, know, a, a, Absolutely. Yeah. Like it, it, there's so much to get into. And I, I wish we had more time this week. But I see we're, we're, we're coming to the, near the end of our time because and I know we have issues related to what protests will be around the, on the legislature uh, grounds and within the building if there is a new private security or not private, but different security force uh, that uh, does, isn't under the, the sergeant of arms. I'm sorry, I wish we'd get into into those things uh, more this week, but there's so much going on. And, and thank you guys for, for basically offering a lot of detail uh, right now that I think people don't normally get a chance to to see in our stories and and talk about as much. Hopefully next week we'll get into a, a few more things. But 
Unfortunately, that's all the time we have this week for Inside the Marble Palace. Alec, Phil, thanks so much for your time and trouble, and uh, thanks for filling in the public. Great job. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.